and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home I ran up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall, no quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson, and I'm not recording this podcast. I'm working as a mental performance coach, which gives me the opportunity to work with elite performers in both business and in sports. So what do I do with them? I help them cultivate their mindset and really help create an environment that allows them to unlock their potential. So we focus on how each person can set their mind to create opportunities to win moments, maximize potential, and ultimately enjoy success. So I love what I do for a living. So I fired up this podcast with a simple mission in mind. How are people intentionally setting their mind to be their best? So that's what we aim to unpack and bring intentional gems to you, the listener. So we're always sifting for what I call intentional gems. Now, before we get started, I want to tell you a bit about how you can help support the podcast. First, we would love if you went over to our Patreon homepage, which you can find at patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you can support the podcast with a $10 a month donation. And it's really helpful for us as we continue to grow the podcast. So once again, go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. The other way is you can go over to iTunes and write us a review. Really helps us out. And the third way is share these conversations, share them on social media, send an email to a friend, whatever you need to do. Let's try to get these people's stories and their mindsets into more people so we can make a bigger impact. Now, today's guest is Tony Ranzoni. Tony works for the Dallas Mavericks as their director of player personnel. He has traveled all over the world coaching and scouting basketball. So he's worked in places like Dubai. He's worked in places like North Korea. He's worked in places like China. So he truly is a world traveler. He played professional ball over in New Zealand. So he has traveled the globe with a basketball in hand and has seen and interacted with some of the best basketball minds in the game and some of the most uh, best basketball talents in the game. So he also held head coaching positions with the Saudi Arabian national team, 
the UAE, UAE United Arab Emeritus team. And Tony, as I said, currently works with the Dallas Mavericks. So he is a basketball guy through and through, but he also was a baseball guy. So he played Division One baseball and basketball, which is a pretty impressive feat. He finished his career at Long Beach State. He started at University of Nevada. So we're going to talk about what it was like to transfer. And Tony, as I said, just has a real sense of joy about him, a sense of gratitude about him. And you can tell he truly does wake up each morning, like he says, being grateful that he's alive and feeling that gratitude and living that gratitude. So this conversation is going to be uplifting. If you're a basketball fan, this is for you. If you're not a basketball fan, hopefully you can still appreciate Tony's passion for the game and how he thinks about mindset as it relates to scouting and what are some of the things he's looking for, and also get a sense for what his mindset is to do a very tough job every single day at the highest level. And he is doing it with a wonderful organization, the Dallas Mavericks. He's also worked with the Minnesota Timberwolves, the Detroit Pistons. So he's been around the block when it comes to the NBA. So I know you'll love this conversation with Tony. And when you do, if you could share it either on Twitter, uh, like it on Instagram, share it on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, wherever it is your social, we'd be forever grateful. Tony is on Twitter at Tony Ranzoni. That'll be in the show notes as well. And I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Intentional Performers. But without further ado, I'm so excited to talk hoops with Tony Ranzoni. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excited to have you uh, with us. We got connected from a mutual friend, Pete Philo. Uh, so shout out to Pete for putting us in touch. Uh, Pete is, is definitely a connector and, and seems to know just about everybody. Um, but where I figured I'd start is uh, you are in a sport, in a position where I think a lot of people that are just fans of basketball would be interested to find out how do you get there. Um, so tell, take us through your journey, um, how you ended up working in the NBA, uh, and, and maybe start there, and, and we'll go from there. I'll try to do this quickly because it's a long story. It's a long process how I ended up in the NBA. And, and, and first of all, I'm very fortunate and very humbled for the opportunity to be in the NBA and doing something that I truly have a great passion is one is sports, but most importantly is the, the game of basketball. Um, I played high school basketball. I got uh, recruited by a lot of colleges. I ended up playing at University of Nevada for two years. I transferred there to Long Beach State, uh, which it, it kind of the process was great because I ended up playing for different head coaches. And, and as my journey goes, I ended up meeting a lot of coaches on the way. Um, after I was done playing, I tried out for the NBA. I didn't make it. And, you know, there's other routes to go in the game of basketball. It's a worldly game. So I was I had an opportunity to be a a player and play in New Zealand and Australia. And when I was in New Zealand, it's the craziest story, but I was 20 years, 21 years old. And, uh, I flew into this town called Wanganui and I was there within three months. And, uh, the coach decided that he didn't want to coach anymore. So the owner of the team asked me if I would be a player coach. Well, my goal was to get into coaching anyway. So someone kind of handed me the baton at 21 years old. Now, the problem with that is as an American import, I had to play 40 minutes a game. So during the timeouts, was a, was a, for me, it was important for me to get a little rest and slow down. And it became really difficult because I had to also talk to the guys about what we needed to do next and pursue um, how are we going to get better and after the timeout. So I had to learn to, to juggle both. It was, it was difficult but exciting uh, because I ended up being the youngest head coach ever in the country of New Zealand. Um, and then from there, I went to Australia and played. And, and again, when I was on these journeys, I was meeting a lot of people. And I'm a big relationship guy. And, 
you know, my whole thing is about information and relationships and this business is very important. So I learned that at an early age. So I ended up doing that for a while, a few years. And then I ended up getting an opportunity to coach at Arizona State with Bill Frieder and uh, George McCorn and Lynn Archibald. And I was a third assistant. I was 26 years old at the time and got very fortunate to get in the Pac-12. Spent a couple of years there. And then the craziest story ever, I get this phone call uh, from this guy named Prince uh, Abdullah from Saudi Arabia. And at the time when he had cell phones, he had, he had the number at my house. Uh, he said he was staying at the Ritz-Carlton there in Phoenix and wanted me to come meet with them. And I said, over what? He said, we have some job opportunities. And so, you know, I'm kind of an adventurous soul. I decided to go to the uh, Ritz-Carlton in Phoenix and speak to uh, uh, Prince Abdullah. And when I was there, he, I noticed that he rented out basically the whole floor. Uh, <laughs> so I was curious to that. I noticed that we had a lot of incredible food and it was a pretty fun time. And I was, as a third assistant coach back in 1991, 92, we didn't make a lot of money, but I, I wasn't doing it for the money. I did it for the love. I would have done it for free, but I, you know, I had a little money, but not much. So I went and he said he wanted me to be the national coach of Saudi Arabia. Now I'm thinking we are just one over there with the Gulf War. Um, I know that I've seen on TV, CNN had, a, you know, segments of the war going on and we're there and I'm like, there's no way in the world I'm going to Saudi Arabia. How did so he, he find, how did he even hear about you? Well, his daughter went to Arizona State, and he came to the game, and he saw me on the sidelines when I was coaching. I was getting after it and had a lot of energy, and I think he got real excited, started asking people who I was, and he's probably thinking, you know, I could probably get a young guy, pay him a lot of money, and entice him to come to Saudi Arabia, which was, you know, at the time was in the Gulf War. And you know, we were just finishing at that time, and he was 91, 92. No, it was 92. So I, uh, he kept telling me he's going to pay me. So he doubled my salary on his first, and I'm like, no. Uh, you know, I appreciate it. Then he said, I'll he double it again. So let's say I went from 10 to 20, 20 to 40, 40 to 80, 80 to 160, 160 up. And I was thinking to myself, you know, whew, got a car payment. It'd be six months on this job. I can make a lot of money. I can be head coach in the national team. I was a very adventurous, but I was going to leave the Pac-12. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to do this on a whim. And I ended up Literally four months later, getting on a plane from uh, Phoenix to New York and New York to uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And all right, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the pause button and we're gonna come back to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> but there's questions that I have along the way. First off, where did you grow up and and why did you end up at Nevada? Like, what what led you to Nevada? So I, I grew up in Oakland, Cal in the Bay Area, in Oakland, California, and I went to school called Bishop O'Dowd, which is a very well known, prestigious high school. Is that Jason um, Kidd or is that a different? School? Yeah, well, actually, it's an interesting story. I've known Jason Kidd since he was ten years. Since he's a young, ten years old and up. So I've been lifelong friends with him. Probably one of the reasons why I was going to Arizona State is I had a connection to bring him to Arizona State to play, uh, and that was one of the reasons Arizona State recruited me. So good question, Brian, because you got me reversed back to really what happened. So I went to Bishop O'Dowd, I got recruited, and my dad at the time was living in South Lake Tahoe. So as a kid, I grew up in the summers in South Lake Tahoe, which is next to Reno. So I kind of enjoyed the opportunity to have my grandparents and dad to come watch me play in Nevada. That's why I ended up signing at Nevada and then and transferred to Long Beach State after that. And what did dad do? And just give me a little more insight into family upbringing. So uh, my dad and mom divorced when I was a baby, real young, but he ended up uh, living in, in uh, Tahoe. He was a well-known politician up there. He was in... Um, he named the insurance companies. He did it all. He was in charge of the Kiwanis Club, played golf with the people at that nice golf course there. He knew everybody from Harris Club. I mean, he was 
well-known in, in the city of South Lake Tahoe. So relationship guy, like, like you, you mentioned that relationships have been a, a big part of your career. Did you learn that from him or? or no question. No question. Being around him in the golf course, he was, you know, when I was a young kid, you know, I used to have to shake people's hands, look in their eyes. You know, it was a time when you call him Mr. Johnson, Mr. Richards, whatever their name was. So I learned at an early age the protocol of, of that. And, you know, he wanted me to always firmly look in your eyes, shake your hand. And, and so I learned that at an early age. And, and he was always the one that talk to people, get to know people. He, you know, he knew everybody. I was, I was amazed. I think as a kid, I learned from him about, you know, getting relationships and being positive. And, and, and I'm a big positive guy, you know, every day for me is a great day. I wake up happy. Um, I, I go to bed happy. And that's, and that's from dad. How about mom? Mom's the rock and soul. She's the one that raised me, spent all the time with me. One of the quiet ones that's go to my games. And, you know, I was a big high school coach star and she would, no one even knew she was my mom. She was quiet, just sit in the stands and say a word. And But she was the one that raised me, supported me, gave me all the love and direction and let me pursue my dream, which was to, I wanted to get a college scholarship. And I also played baseball. Um, I was a pretty good baseball player. I actually ended up playing baseball at Nevada and Long Beach State uh, both times, which is rare for any athlete to do that. I was, As soon as the basketball season was over, I was out on the baseball field at Nevada. And then at Long Beach State, who at the time they were like ranked in the top twenty in the nation, so uh, sports sports come easy to you from a young age? Yeah, especially baseball. Baseball is. My dad passed away about fourteen years ago, but if he was alive, he would have said that you know he wished I continued baseball because it was easy for me. I didn't really have to work hard at it. It was just I was more of a natural basketball. I had to work harder at it. I had to change my shot. I had to work on my game more. You know, a little more difficult because I you know I was athletic but not real athletic, so I had to do other things, footwork. So it was a different process in development, but baseball was easy. And we live in a, a era now where, look, I'm around college coaches all the time, and uh, there's a lot being made of the disease of transfers. Um, what is your thought on transferring? Because you you obviously went through it, and uh, yeah. what, what was what's your thought on just transferring, and, and how did it also uh, work out for you? Well, I think the, the the sad part about transfers today in this era is that kids, if the, they want instant gratification. So if they're not playing 30 minutes tonight, they feel that the coach is not taking care of them. And, you know, the coach has a hard job. He's got 12 players to manage, and there's only a certain amount of minutes. So that's the hard part today. You know, so now my reasoning for transferring was I went to a, a school that had 10 seniors on the team, and going into my sophomore going into my junior year the whole team was leaving and they're bringing another 10 to 12 juco kids in and i just didn't feel like going through i developed a good relationship with the two-year stint i had with most of the juco kids i was one of the only two freshmen on the team so i decided that you know i kind of wanted to always live on the beach and um i'm an la i'm a california guy so i kind of decided to go that route but the two years i was at nevada we went to the tournament both years first time ever in 110 history so I got an opportunity to, to experience that. And then uh, I got my degree from Long Beach State and play basketball and baseball there. And I'm not going to skip over that. So position in basketball, position in baseball. And and, uh, what, and what was it like going back and forth between those two sports? Very Well, in, in, in high school, it was a lot easier because you, they didn't interlap. And it, it was just easier to go from basketball into the baseball field in high school. And college is very difficult because, one, the pitchers are faster, the players are better. And, and I was a shortstop in high school and playing in summer ball but in in college they they put me to third base because it was a more of a reaction position 
And it was tough to come off a basketball court, not play for five months, and then just walk out on the baseball field. I had good bat speed, so I was able to hit, you know, I, it was more natural for me, um, but it was difficult. And in basketball, I was a point guard who shot too much. And, and now what I know today as a, as a, as a assistant GM slash player personnel <laughs> director is that I would have told myself that I should have passed more. I was <laughs> somewhat of a, uh, I shot too much. So if I could reverse it back to the years, I'd have been a little more pass happy. I'm laughing because I loved passing. I was a point guard and my dad coached me growing up. And I, my favorite thing to do in games was to come down and top of the key, first play of the game, shoot it. And my, my justification was, well, if I make it, then they're going to have to come out on me. And now I'm going to be able to do everything. Um, but my dad hated it <laughs> and, and he hated it when I made it. Cause then I think he thought, then I thought I had the green light to just go and, and shoot it. Um, so, so, so that resonates with me. Um, mentality wise, you mentioned being a positive guy. Um, what was the difference in mindset when you played basketball and when you played baseball, um, for you? I had a winning mentality. I, 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 I had a saying that winners make it happen and losers make excuses. And I was, I preached it. I, I believed in it. And I, and I always told my teammates that, you know, no matter what, we are never out of a game. We never quit. And my philosophy was if we got beat, that's okay to get beat because if I know I gave it my all, the team just had the, the other team had a better day. And that's okay because we're going to continue to improve and get better. So my mindset was always to make it happen. So that was a big thing with winners make it happen. And I felt if we had, if we continue to make winners, as teammates and as a team, we're being very successful no matter what. Because when you walk off the floor no, as a coach or as a player, you want to know that you gave everything you had to win that game. So that was always my mindset, to compete at the highest level and never, never quit. And from a sports psychology standpoint, I don't know if – was Ken Revisa at Long Beach State? Does that resonate with you at all? Say that again. Uh, there was a, there's a sports psychologist who's a legend in, in our field named Ken Revisa. Yes. Um, and Evan Lagoria and, and Tulowitzki, yep. they really credit uh, a lot of their turnaround with, you know, the mental um, work that they did at Long Beach State. Was that there when you were there? Do you remember any of that? Right after, right after I left, I, because I, I do know what you're talking about. I know that Long Beach State has had an incredible run with uh, sports psychologists there. And, you know, in Dallas, we have our own sports psychologist that's who's excellent and travels with our team as part of our team. So I'm a big believer in, in, in sports psychologists with teams. It's becoming more and more a known factor that teams have to have one. Yeah. I'd love to get into that with you now. And then I want to find out a little more about your psychology other than, you know, you know, giving it your max effort just because baseball and basketball are so different. Um, but let's just dive into that real quick. So the guy that I'm talking about, Ken Revisa, uh, works with the Chicago Cubs he works with Long Beach State. He's based out of LA. And then you mentioned the Dallas Mavericks. Don Kalkstein yes. uh, has been with the Mavs for a number of years. But uh, the Mavs are really, um, as you look around the NBA, I mean, certainly, I know Don's been there for probably over 10 years. He's been there for a while. Um, but in baseball, I think there's only three teams that don't have a full-time person. Um, that's it. So uh, you really have every baseball team has somebody and a lot of them now have multiples because they have their minor league system. So they'll have 
two or three or even four people and they'll spread them all over the country. Um, but in the NBA, it's still rare. Certainly the Mavs, I think, are at the forefront of it with, with Don. Um, so I would love to just get your perspective on, on why you think that is, that baseball is sort of ahead of the game when it comes to sports psychology or, or there's more popularity or it's more common or, or what you think about that. I think there's, I think the, with the baseball component is the fact is there's more players to manage. Uh, where coaches, you know, they got to spend more time on the individual drills, the fundamental drills. And I think the, the, the off the court stuff is, or off the field stuff has got to be now more involved with people that, you know, can talk to the players in a positive way. Sometimes coaches, you know, when they say stuff, they're only talking about the ba- what they're doing on the baseball field. And I think, you know, it's such a mental game, baseball, even more than basketball. Basketball is more instincts. It's just reaction. Baseball, there's more thinking, you know, what does it count? What is this pitcher throwing? You know, and then you get in slumps and how do you get out of slumps? So I just feel with baseball, it's it's more important to have a psychologist with the team to talk to players. Uh, there's a lot going on. You're in cities for four to five days at a time. The season's long with, you know, 160 plus games. So I'm, you know, and again, and I think every NBA team will eventually have a psychologist with them full time. And let's go back to your psychology. So, uh, you know, baseball, what would you, I think when you're describing it, we're, we're going to find a way to win, we're going to make it happen. You know, I'm going to give max effort. Uh, was that also how you approached baseball or did you uh, do anything in baseball to make sure that mentally you were where you needed to be? Well, I think in, in basketball for me, it was more about playing hard, you know, and competing every day at practice, competing in the game where in baseball, it was more of my mental mind to prepare for, for games because of, you know, you can't be running hundred miles an hour and every time, every, every play or what you're doing for me, baseball, it was more of a mental approach, how I'm going to prepare for the pitcher that I'm going against, you know, what was the count, how many outs, you know, we're runner on first runner on third. What am I going to do? You know, where, where in basketball, you're not preparing that way. It's instinct. It's, it's the balls to you. You got to react to make a play baseball. You got to think more. Yeah, the other I think thing about baseball is, you know, you might strike out swinging and embarrass yourself, and then you're not getting another shot for you're gonna sit with it for a while, and you might be playing third base or outfield, and you might not even get any action there to make up for it. Whereas in basketball, if I, you know, airball a shot, you know, I can take a charge, I can grab a rebound, I can do something else to get in the flow of the game effort wise. You can't really out effort. Uh, you can't really get your effort to grit. You grip the bat harder a lot of times in baseball and that's death, right? Like right, uh, right. <laughs> it, it's like the it, golf is another sport. I think anything where you have to grip it, it it's you, you can't really let it out. Whereas sports like football and basketball, you can actually let that effort and energy ooze out of you. Um, you know, the other thing I was just curious about, and you mentioned this is the idea of being a two sport athlete at a high level um, you know, division one sports, was there any resentment from either side that you weren't all in, um, you know, in, in either sport, did you ever get any resentment from the guys no, or from the, staff? I think it was more, more resentment on my part is the fact is that I was more indebted to play basketball. I was a hundred percent in basketball. And I think when I walked on the baseball field, I was 75%. It was more the coaches pushing me out there because the game was pretty natural to me, but I didn't, I really liked it. I didn't love it. Where in basketball, I really loved it. So there was a difference. So I kind of, that's why I only played one year at each spot because I just, uh, 
I didn't have it in me. And, you know, and it was tough, I think, for me going out as a freshman at Reno because I walked on the varsity field, and within three games they had me in the starting lineup. And I was out there playing, and I kind of felt bad for the guys that were out there in, in the fall ball and prepping all year. And then here I come out of the off the court, and I'm out there on the field. So, that, you know, that everyone was positive because I have a, you know, I'm a real positive type of person. But, you know, I think it was tough on those other players. And I kind of felt bad, at t- you know, a little bit at the time. And again, I wasn't 100% into it. Why did you stay with it? Baseball. Because uh, it was kind of natural. And I actually, I did love playing the sport. I didn't go, I wasn't basketball love, but I did like playing and I enjoyed it. And then when the coaches, you know, you're young, coaches tell you, we want you out. We need you out. Everyone felt you should be out. And, and when I would walk out there, you know, I could take the ground ball, throw out the first. I can, I was putting the bat on the ball and it was just easy. Yeah. You know, for basketball, you know, you know, if I wasn't making threes, I'd go out next night and shoot 153s at, at night or 503. So it's, a, it's just a different mental approach, I think, to it. And I want to go to New Zealand. So, uh, A, what goes into your decision to go to a small country as far away from uh, California as possible um, to, you know, take on the adventure of playing pro basketball uh, at such a young age? Well, I was always intrigued as a, when I was younger about Australia and New Zealand. It always intrigued me those that, those that country. One, they speak English. Uh, I was very I, – you know, I used to watch rugby, all kinds of sports. I was intrigued by that. And I just – you know, instead of going to Belgium or somebody somewhere in Europe, Italy would have been my natural destination in the beginning because I'm Italian. But I just decided that I wanted to – I had an opportunity, and the coach there recruited me well. They went to my games at Long Beach and came at me pretty hard, and I was like, let's do this. And – uh it was a great decision. I loved it. Beautiful country, beautiful people, and and uh, the games improved. And now you got guys like Stephen Adams in the NBA, and look at all the Australians in the NBA now. It's so you can see the progress because both those countries are very sports oriented uh, countries. They do yeah. very well for the low population. Yeah, people don't realize. I mean, New Zealand has how many people? Like four million people in the whole country. Yeah, yeah. and Australia only has like twenty. It's like. 20. 23 million Australian. You look at all the pro. I mean, they got six NBA guys right now. They got four or five in the NBA playoffs right now. Patty, Matthew Deladova, and uh, Ben Simmons. And you think that's a result of like their sports institute and the fact that they, they really do like the Australia sports institute. I know in sports psychology, they've got a lot of sports science comes out of there. Um, So yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about, I think a lot of has to do is the whole country's built on the ocean front. If you, if you go to Adelaide, Perth, all the way down to Melbourne, Sydney, all the way up to Kansas, all so they're they're most of the, they're outside majority of the time, and it's kind of their culture when you're everyone plays sports. Either it's golf, if it's if it's rugby, if it's soccer, if it's cricket, they play literally everything. And the Australians are very determined people. When they're they're very humble people, very uh, sharing type of people. If they never take credit. Um, it's never about I, it's always about we, our country. It's about the boomers. It's about, you know, the flag that they represent. And I think they're just very giving, sharing people. And if you watch them play basketball, that's the way they play. They pass and move and cut, you know, the same way they play rugby. It's a very unselfish game. And seemingly an element of like fearlessness as well, where, you know, they're not going to get so in their head. Um, and so, you know, maybe they don't take themselves too seriously, right? The sense of humor, uh, or whatever it may be, just generalizing. Um, what's it like for you at 21, 22 years old, though? Um, so this coach recruits you. He's no longer there. Um, why did they choose you um, to coach? And 
What was that like for you to start coaching at such a young age? Well, I knew I wanted to be a coach, so it has actually worked out perfect. I was actually excited for the opportunity. I think the, the owner would come to the game practices when I first got there, and he'd see me um, organizing a lot of stuff. I was kind of basically putting in plays for us. I was doing a lot with the coach there, so they saw me on the court running stuff, and I had a lot of energy, and he knew I wanted to coach. And uh, actually, Were you like that? Were you like that in college, too? Yeah, I was more of a coach as a point guard. Yeah, I was I was a leader. You know, I always talked, uh, communicated with the, my players. Um, like, again, I said, if I could redo it, I'd be less of a shooter and more of a passer because I was at times a little selfish with the ball. And, and, and you learn from that, especially when you get into coaching. Um, so I was able to relate to players that, you know, a guy like you that want to come down and shoot the first ball at the top of the key and maybe wanted to shoot all the time, Brian. We You know, we would communicate about that. And, and I let you know that, you know, you're a great player, but we also have four other players that would like to take the first shot too. So let's give them an opportunity. Mediocre. Well, I peaked in third grade and then it just started to go downhill. But uh, <laughs> uh, that this isn't about me. It's about you. So, all right. I think I got a good grips on sort of what led to this Saudi Arabian guy <laughs> saying, <laughs> all right, Tony, you're our guy. So now take me there. So uh, I'm assuming. Go to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and, and again, I, I got, I got thousands of stories. <laughs> Uh, I, I just remember driving in a car and they're always in a hurry, but nowhere to go. I, I remember that because there's, 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 it's a very interesting country. Um, you know, every, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, you're coming from a Western world, coming over to where, you know, people are in their dish dashes and, and, uh, the woman in their bias. And, uh, there's a door you go in, that says family. And there's a door that says men. Um, I remember the first day I was over there, I went, there was 110. I went to the mall uh, with a couple of, of, uh, the basketball, uh, people. And uh, I was wearing shorts and I got whipped in my leg because, uh, the Motawa, I think they're called the Motawa police. Not, not sure on that. And, uh, they basically said, I'm not allowed to wear shorts in public. So, and I was a little shocked on that because it was 110 and I didn't realize, you know, it's a little hot. You should be able to wear <laughs> shorts. So again, it's all an adjustment. You learn, but what I do is I used to dive into the culture and respect it, whatever it shall be, um, and just try to do it their way. It's just, it was very unorganized. I had a hard time with that. Um, we would, they would have practice planned for our national team, and then they would cancel it, and it'd be a month later. So there was a little, a lot of disarray. So I kind of became frustrated there after being there for about six months. We did go on a tournament to Dubai, United Emirates. And when I went there, fell in love with the place. It's like the Hawaii, the Middle East, very open. There's probably 85% of people that live in Emirates are foreigners. Most of the people are British. There's only 13% of the population there are actual naturals. So it's, it, was, it felt like being in a Western world. And I ended up leaving at Saudi that year and going to, to Dubai and coaching at, at a, a club and with the national program there. And I ended up staying there for six years wow. as a head coach and had a blast. Wow. Had a blast. And what's it like going there and coaching different cultures? And, you know, uh, I'm assuming you have an eclectic group of people from all over the world, or what were the people like that you were coaching? You, yeah, you have, you'd have imports that was you can pick, which was important because you, they can be Americans that you knew and what program they're from. I usually got a lot of guys from Indiana University at the time with Bobby Knight because I know they were very disciplined, very structured, and came and they had a purpose to be, you know, to be there. Um, my local players that I coached, you know, they would drive up their Mercedes Benz or Lexus or whatever else they had. And so if you told them practice at four 30, well, it was maybe at five. 
<laughs> so as an American, you adjust to the time because time was, if you told them at a certain time, just plan on 30 to 45 minutes starting. Now, as an American coach in America, you would go crazy. So again, you have to adjust the culture. So I adjusted the culture and just knew that whatever time I told them, 45 minutes later, and there's nothing you could do about it, but you made it work, you know, to survive. And if you enjoyed the coaching part of it, you know, again, you learn to adjust. And I think that made me a better coach later in life and it made me a better person because I learned to adjust to things that you can't control. And that's just part of life. You know, some things that just happen, you just got to adjust. And um, you just sometimes you get excited, sometimes you get down, you got to keep an even kill about yourself. You mentioned that you knew you wanted to coach, and then you, you mentioned the word joy, that you enjoyed coaching. Uh, what did you enjoy about coaching? I enjoyed being in practice with players. I enjoyed looking in their eyes and seeing a smile when you push them to get them to do something they never accomplished. Uh, working on a kid's footwork, and he struggles with it. He travels, and now after a four or five days of practice, he finally does it. You know, I was one of those coaches that when one of my players had success, I'd stop practice. When I saw a positive, blow the whistle, I'd run over to that player. I'd high-five him. I'd give him a hug, and I'd let the whole team know that what he just did. So I acknowledged him. And, you know, instead of, you know, I was I never was in a coach that berate players. I was complete opposite. I was more of a positive, let's get after it. And when you did that, I always felt players would play harder for you. And, and if you acknowledge their accomplishment and give them a pat on the back, because everyone wants to do well. They're trying hard. Some guys aren't as gifted or talented or athletic and you know you find ways to help them become better players so i got joy in making players better and i love when they look in my eyes and smiled and 15 years later i still get emails from them 20 years later and they tell me about their family and their kids to me you can't get more no better joy or excitement than than that that part of the coaching so the positivity was definitely your style and that worked for you but the guy that you mentioned earlier that you like to recruit players from was not known for that right bobby knight isn't known for that. Um, mm -hmm. And there are a lot of really successful coaches that that is not their style. That's not their way. Um, I would love to just hear you riff on that and um, just the different styles and the different approaches that coaches have. And, you know, I've been around high school, college and pro level. And um, there really is, I've just seen so much diversity of approach in it. Um, so I would just love to hear you riff on that a little bit. Yeah, one of the reasons I like to get players when I was foreign players to come play for me from tough programs is because you got to remember, you're taking a kid from America, flying him all the way across the world. He's got to live in a different environment, different culture, different set of rules, different way of living. Um, so a player that's used to a regimen structure that it's tough and it's and he, and he, and he's just it makes life very difficult. You bring him into a place like Dubai, where you tell him practice at 4.30, now it's 5.15, it's going to be easier for him to adjust because um, he's going to understand how to react and do that. So I always like that, where if you if you had someone that was kind of footloose, fancy free, and do whatever he wanted, you know, I think you would lose control because there's so much freedom uh, when you leave and go to another country because you only practice two to four hours a day. So I wanted guys that were serious, that wanted to be there, wanted to get better and continue get better and try to come back and play in the NBA or get a higher job in Europe. And you coached at Arizona State, so you coached at college level, and then you coached pros. What was your approach? Did it change at all uh, coaching those two different people, or were you still just take the same approach depending on – I took the same approach. And, again, I, you know, I didn't have always those players that were from those type of programs like Bobby Knight. Now, 
Could I work for Bobby Knight? No. Could I coach with Bobby Knight? No. You know, uh, that's not my style. That's not the way I don't, I'm not into yelling at people or not. But again, that was his way of being successful. I respect it. And he was very successful in what he did. And there's different ways to coach. Uh, it's just that I like the the other approach. Sure. Okay. Uh, so you're there for six years. So now I'm, I'm doing the math. You're in your thirties now. Um, what comes next for you? All right. And then I ended up going to China. Uh, you had well, no I, culture, no China, Australia, New Zealand, and, and, um, the Middle East. I mean, you're well, hitting continents. Let's, let's see. I, I went to China. Actually, actually what I did is 1994 on a whim, I went to the Goodwill games in Russia in St. Petersburg. Let's just hit, let's just hit our continents. <laughs> well, it was, it was a great opportunity to be there. And, and so I actually ran into Donnie Nelson, who I've known for a long time. And when I was there in 1994, Donnie just kind of threw at me. He said, hey, you should look to get an NBA because your your relationships, you're traveling all over the world. You know, our game's becoming more international. What was Donnie, what was Donnie doing at that time? He was working at the time for Golden State Warriors. And and that, that was a coach. Correct. So Donnie and I, we've crossed paths before. We've always talked international basketball. We talked about how these players are coming up. Donnie was the one that was influential to get Marshallonis over to the NBA the rest the whole curtain breaking down the wall and so we we talked about that we were 94 we were the only he was the only nba guy there i was just there on a whim and he was impressed with that and so he kind of said you know you should look to go to the nba and uh so in 1997 i went to chicago pre-draft just on a whim uh slept on my buddy's couch who's an agent now and uh went in there and ran into donnie he says what are you doing so i said well you won't believe this i'm coaching in Dubai. I was looking to go over to China. And he said to me, he goes, is there anybody in China can play? I said, yeah, I'm actually, there's a kid that I'm doing a camp. Uh, that's pretty good. I think he's a pro. And the kid ended up being Wong Juju. Mm. We ended up drafting later in, in Dallas. Um, hang on. I gotta get this. Can you see me? I can't see you, but I can hear you fine. All right, great. <laughs> so uh, let me just uh, get rid of this. The client. Okay, cool. Sorry. So, um, so I ended up running to him at, at the, at the Hyatt there. And he said, well, let's meet up tonight, you know, later. And I says, great. So he goes, let me ask him, where else are you doing any clinics? I said, well, you're going to be, this is crazy, but I'm going to go over to North Korea. I'm going to go see that kid, Michael Rye, uh, play, but I'm actually going over there to do a clinic. Now, FIBA's sending me over there because how'd you get in there? I said, well, I think they're sending me as an Italian. They're saying that I'm an Italian guy. <laughs> So, because you can't get in with an American passport, so he's looking at me just like, "We got to talk tonight." So I go to his, and he goes, "What do you?" Th-? And I said, "You know, I'm thinking about you." Told me to look at the NBA. I said, "I'm here," but I, but I told, I said, "Donnie, honestly, I'm happy coaching overseas. I'm fine. I'm actually, if it happens, great. But if not, I'm staying overseas." Go to his room. He calls his dad, Nelly. Nelly comes to the room. He looks at Donnie. Says, "You want to hire him?" Donnie goes, "Yeah." And he goes, "Hire him." <laughs> Ten minutes later, he walks out the door, and I'm hired. So. Now, Donnie and I start talking and strategizing, and I uh, uh, ended up, we go to China, and we go to a three-on-three tournament in the streets of Shanghai, Before, and I run across a seven-foot-four kid named uh, Yao Ming. So that's kind of how it all started. You know, we just ran into Yao Ming out of the blue, and then we went over and watched the kid work out with his team, Wang Juju, and uh, then Donnie said, well... Why don't you stay in Europe for a couple of years and uh, kind of scout over here to, since you know everybody? So I moved to Italy at the time. And can you can you hide the seven five 
Chinese no, kid. <laughs> we tried. We tried. We were trying to figure it out, but back then you couldn't. And the, and the NBA was going to figure them out sooner or later. But we did find them. And so we've, we've known Yao Ming forever. But so we come back. I go to Italy, stay there for two years. So wait, you know, hold on, hold on one second. First off, did you ever have dreams of coaching in the NBA? Was that ever in your mind? I was. I had more dreams of coaching in college. I thought at the time in our in that day and era, I thought the NBA was so far away from me. I didn't think I could ever reach that milestone. You know, back then you just you know now everyone's got the phones. They feel like they can touch everyone. Back then you just thought the NBA was so far away. I was lucky to go to a game in Oakland at the Golden State Warriors, my first game, and I sat in the last row for a five dollar ticket, and I thought that was the best thing in the world. So at the time it was more college. I thought I was going to get back into college game, but. When I ran into Donnie, uh, he kind of triggered me to the NBA, and then he ended up hiring me in 97. And so, but he's hiring you to be a scout at, at that point? International scout at that point, yeah. And so what's it like for you to not be coaching, but be scouting? And, and walk us through that transition for you personally. Well, he actually thought we were going to be coaching the Mavericks, because I don't know if you remember when he took over, his, when his dad took over, Donnie was possibly going to become the head coach there a couple years later. And that was this whole thing to me is, look, you know, we'll do this for a couple of years. And then, you co- you know, there's an opportunity for you to come on the bench with me in Dallas. We're going to get it done. So actually there was an opportunity. And then in the summer leagues, I coached with Donnie with the NBA summer league, you know, team there. So, but, but what was it, what was it like for you to be out of coaching for those first couple of years? Did you miss it? Did you get the, yeah, edge? I did miss it. yeah, I did miss it. I did miss it. But the good thing is that I was doing camps and clinics all around the world. That's when I started doing FIBA stuff. So FIBA would send me, I went to Nigeria, I went to Egypt, I went to North Korea. Um, so I was going all around the world doing clinics. So as a coach, you still feel you're like you're involved because you're on the floor. Like my clinics, though, I never did it in a classroom. I used to do my clinics with coaches on the floor. So I And I used to have them have players for me. And I have 10 to 12 players, and I'd have 100, 200 coaches, and I would work on the floor for four straight days. So I still was getting my feel of coaching, even though I was missing it. What do you think makes a great coach? That's a good question. What makes a great? I think a coach that uh, can have an even kill, never get too high on wins, never get too low on losses, and and even and understand that that it's not about you; it's about your team and how we're going to get better. Um, I think there's different ways of making a good coach. I don't think there's a specific. As we talked, there's coaches that yell scream as coaches that are positive like the Mike Bray type at Notre Dame there's just different ways of doing it you know and I was fortunate to be around coach Krzyzewski for seven years with the USA Olympic team so I got a chance to be around him to see his philosophy and how he does it and I learned quite a bit from him during those years and Bayheim and D'Antoni and Nate McMillan so I've been very fortunate to be around those guys so is there, I'm still coaching hard Brian is there is there a common thread between those guys that you just mentioned um Ability to motivate players, ability to show leadership, ability to get people to play above and beyond what they can do. Awesome. And then you are scouting players. What mentally uh, are you looking for in a, in, a, in a player? Three things I look for. I look for hand skills, which means everything. His hands, can he catch, can he shoot? Does he got a feel? Does he got a touch? Foot skills. I want to. I watch kids how they run. Can they run up and down the floor without falling down? Do can they can they catch the ball off balance without falling down? Do they have good footwork without traveling? Um, 
And then the last thing is, is, is right up your alley is called mental skills. So I, I watch kids is how they communicate with their coach, how they communicate with their teammates, how they interact with fans, how they interact during timeouts, during a game. Are they paying attention? How are they on the bench? Are they, are they talking and looking around at other things? Are they focusing on what their team needs to do and are they ready to play? So when I'm looking, those are three components that I, that I really focus on. And what makes a great scout? Um, you got to have eye for the talent. You got to feel your gut. I, I feel that you got to know what can translate is really important. You know, what, it, what part of his game can translate. I don't care if a kid's five foot four. I don't care if he's seven foot five. They're, they're, you got to know something that, that can translate to the next level. You know, now I'm in the NBA. I have to find guys that can translate to play in our league. When you're in college, you got to find high school kids that translate to play college. You know, um, I, I'm, in, I'm really big into guys that play hard, really big into that. To me, that is a huge ingredient because you, you can't teach that. So let, say you teach it, but you can't. Let me challenge you with that. So you answer that as a scout would answer it. But if you're scouting a scout, like if, if, if you have to hire a scout, what are the qualities you're looking for in that person? Uh, I want to know if he's – well, let's just talk about off, off the court. I want to see what type of relationships he has. Uh, how he interacts with people. How does he interact with people when he's sitting down during a game? Um, is he paying attention to the game? I see a lot of scouts are on their phone the whole time and they're not watching the game. That bothers me. You know, I watch the game. Um, the only time I go to my phone is during timeouts or breaks or halftime. But during the game, I'm watching. And, and I think and that's a big thing. I think a lot of guys aren't paying attention. Um, I want to know if, they're, if, if I ever see their reports, what kind of notes they're taking. Are they focused? Are they, are they right on their reaction? Now, and again, there's no right or wrong. My biggest thing on a scout, if I'm evaluating him, is I don't want to see guys sit on a fence. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what you feel. Tell me what you think. Be concise. And I'm never going to evaluate you, but I, I'd love that more because we're all right or wrong. We all make mistakes. But I want to see. Tell me why you think this player is going to be good. Because you, that scout made me give me something that I haven't seen before. Yeah, you spend some time with some NBA uh front office people and you will hear them have different memories or recall of who they liked, who they didn't like and <laughs> all that good stuff. Um, right. Cool. And uh, walk us through what it's like for you, because I think a lot of people have a misconception of what it's like to work in an NBA front office and think that it's fantasy sports and they're just like, you know, taking one guy here and putting a guy there. So like walk us through what a year looks like. Uh, and obviously it's, it's cha- it always changes dramatically. Um, but just walk us through what it looks like to be uh, part of a front office. Well, as a front office executive, it's, it's a, one, it's an extremely full-time job. Uh, you're, you're away from home a lot. Um, your schedule changes all the time. You got to be ready for change. Starting in September, your players start coming in, they're working out. October, you start preseason uh, games. So you're around the team quite a lot then, but then when you got to go back on the road because you start, you got to start going to college practices. You got to start going to um, figuring out who the top 60 to 100 players are. You got to know the international guys. Then the G League starts getting ready. They start hyping up. You got to get ready to know which guys you're going to get ready for the G League. Now we have a thing in the NBA called two-way players. So you got to figure out who your two-way players are. Um, you're trying to evaluate your team every game all throughout during the year. And then from November until um, end of March, you're in the college season where it's hot and heavy. So you're constantly on the road, evaluating talent. 
Then you got in between that, you got the, the famous trade deadline that uh, goes on for about a week. And, um, and again, it's a lot of talk and a lot of, mu- a lot of, it, a lot of stuff doesn't get, doesn't happen because, you know, teams try to get trades done and doesn't happen, but you got to be ready for that. And during that time, you're also going to NBA games, Brian, evaluating talents that you can maybe trade in, uh, in future picks or trades or to try to help your team get better. And then after that, you got, you got all the Portsmouth, you got the Chicago draft combine, you got college workouts and you got mini camp free agent camps in June. And then you're getting ready for the draft. And then I'm trying to do as quick as I can, Brian. And after that, you got, <laughs> I think we got, I think we got a, a good enough picture. Um, there you and, go. and the game's constantly evolving, changing. So uh, you now have analytics playing a big role. You now have, there's something good for those that don't know synergy sports um, or technology where you basically can watch a player's, you know, every post move that he does and goes to a jump hook uh, and you can just edit everything. Uh, so how important for you is it to still see things live compared to looking at numbers and paper and video? Um, wh- how do you think about all that? For me, a hundred percent. I need to see live. I, I get numbers all the time, but end of the day, you got to know a player, how he acts on the floor, what talent he's going against, what does he do off the ball, does he stand around when he doesn't have it. you you got to know every single factor of that player. So to me, live is 100%. I'll look at numbers because, you know, you need to see what he's shooting from the three. But you can also understand that some stats get diluted in those numbers because if you're a great player, example is – I can't say it. So but example is you get a great point guard who shooting ball 20 times a game. Maybe, but his shooting percentage is low at 30%. But you're looking at him as like he's getting double teamed. Why is he shooting that much? Well, his team's probably not that good. So he has to shoot it. His coach forces him to shoot it. Um, another thing is that you look at a guy that doesn't play great defense. You know, I've, I've, I've been big. That to me, I watch because a lot of times great players on great teams can't get in foul trouble. Um, I'll just say Anthony Davis plays with the Pelicans. Great example. If he goes out of the game for New Orleans, what happens? They're a different team. So there's times those guys got to take plays off. They can't be as aggressive because they need them more at the offensive end. So I really look at certain guys on why they're not known as defensive guys, but I think they can become better. And you've added up close seat to two of the biggest international prospects to come into the NBA in the last 20 years. Uh, certainly Yao. And I think people uh, forget how freaking good he was uh before the injuries took its toll and the guy who's probably i don't know is he considered the best international basketball player ever um in in dirk nowitzki um both of those guys personality wise seem to transition really well um or and they they seem to have blended in or um you know like i remember reading about yao and Steve Francis just loving Yao and people talking about Yao being an amazing teammate. And you hear that about Dirk. I've had people on this podcast who have played with Dirk and they just say, Dirk is just an incredible teammate. And you know, when the lights come on, like Dirk's going to compete. So I would love to just hear your uh, analysis of the mentality of both Yao and Dirk. Well, Dirk's mentality is off the chart. You know, he's, he's the hardest working guy on your team. Um, 
even at his age now, 39, going on 40, you know, as soon as our season was over, he was downstairs working out the next day. And all our young uh, players were coming in for their exit interviews, and that's one thing they noticed. You know, Dennis Smith quoted, he was saying that that's unbelievable. I'm coming in for exit interview next morning, and here's Dirk working out in the morning. So, again, he's a leader, and he shows guys why he's good, and he's a sixth all-time leading scorer in the NBA, and he's paved the way. And what he's done as a face-up seven-footer has been incredible. Uh, his footwork, you know, he's not that he will never win any uh, race from inline to inline, but he he gets buckets and he knows how to shoot. And he understands about angles. He understands about the game, and his and his personality is people just love being around him. He's just a team guy. He loves being part of the team. He's an unselfish type of person. And Yao's the same way. You know, they always wanted Yao to shoot more, do more, but he was just a team player, and his personality was great. And those two guys really have paved the way for the international uh, players now who have helped them transition. And, of course, with all the gains televised over TV, that's really helped. And guys like Ginobili and all that, they've paved the way. And the other guy I just was curious about who you were around is, is Nash, um, who we forget is, is international. <laughs> um, yeah. But but walk, walk us through the impact. And you had him at a at sort of – What's crazy about him is it's like he, he, you know, he's in Phoenix and he goes to Dallas and he goes to Phoenix. Um, but you know, he, I, I'm sure you saw him sort of come on up uh, in in Dallas. And I remember watching him his rookie year um, in Phoenix, and I was young, and I remember being like, "This guy can't play." Um, <laughs> and I, I like, I, I, I was just like. I don't think this guy's going to make it. I was probably, I don't know, 16 years old. Um, but I remember like thinking like, this guy's terrible. And he struggled his rookie year. Um, yeah. and, and then came into his own a little bit later. And I know Dirk, Dirk struggled his rookie year as well. Um, but what, what, what made Nash special and, uh, and, and unique? His, his work ethic and his, and, his, and his ability to pursue greatness. Um, I'll give an example in Dallas. We traded for him. You know, he struggled his first year with us in Dallas. In fact, I think our fans were booing him at Reunion Arena. And, and a Dirk is a rookie struggle, but Dirk never had any summer league, no preseason. It was that shortened strike year, so he only played a certain amount of games. But Dirk did struggle. Um, he was thin. And it takes a while for these European guys or any international guy to adjust to the NBA. One, the terminology. Two, the foot speed, the game, the refereeing, the spacing. It takes the guys at least a year to two years to adjust. And you always see international guys get better after the first to second or third year. Um, same as a big guy. You know, big guys are slower to develop. You know, Jermaine O'Neal never played at 19 years old with Portland and ended up being a great center when he's 25. So Steve Nash's ability to get better was unbelievable. Him and Dirk at night would come into um, Landry Center where we used to practice, and they would come and play full court on the side baskets. They would play one-on-one. So they would play one-on-one -on -one game of layups, all right, one-on-one -on -one game of shooting off your opposite foot, all right, one-on-one -on -one game shooting three. You know, they would play all these different games every night, and they would push each other and work hard. And those two developed into being MVPs of the NBA, which is pretty incredible. So I remember them at night when I was there. I would see them come and work out. It was pretty impressive. And this is certainly not a slight to either of them, but what role do you think each other played in their own development like you just talking about the two of them going at each other having each other competing uh do you think they become who they become without that uh without that competition i th i think they i think they truly helped each other 
become better players, both of them in their own way. Two international guys who were trying to make their own way in the NBA. Um, and I think they developed each other. I really do. I think they pushed each other to an extent that they felt that, you know, they got to be successful and there was pressure on them. Um, and then, you know, off the court, they hung out together all the time and developed a great bond. And I think it was beneficial for those two to start out their careers together. And that leads to me ask, leads to my uh, curiosity, curiosity around culture. And, uh, you know, Rick Carlisle has been a staple with the Mavs for years, uh, obviously a, a down year. Um, but, you know, the, the consistency and the amount of years that the Mavs have been good uh, with Carlisle uh, has certainly been impressive. And obviously winning, winning a championship when no one, I, well, maybe you, you're, you're very positive and you're there, but most people certainly did not expect them to win that championship. Um, what, walk us through culture. What is the culture that he, he and the rest of the organization has established uh, in Dallas? And what do you think about culture? Uh, I think it's huge. I think I think if you ask people around the league, they think of Dallas as a great destination, uh, very structured, very good people. Um, we give the players a lot of uh, a po- you know positives and stuff they need in the training and all that. And it all starts with our owner, Mark Cuban. Definitely is to me hands down the best owner in the league. Um, and then with Donnie Nelson as as our president, GM, and with Rick Carlisle, we have three leaders who got a foundation to run our whole organization you know with donnie with the with our front office staff and with with mark as the ownership and then with rick on the coaching side is that they're all in line um where everyone's on the same page with the same purpose to pursue greatness and and get wins and um i think i think a lot of people that are listening to this probably won't realize what that is so donnie's been there for how long 19 years, I think 20 years now, 20. And Carlisle's been there for how long? 2007, shoot, about nine, going on his ninth year. Yeah, give or take, I'm not sure. Yeah, let's call it 10 years, right? So Yeah, and stability, there you go. You just hit on the head, Brian, it's stability. And then with Mark's ownership, leadership, you know, it's stability. Because I think a lot of people, once again, um, the – you, you started this conversation by saying, I'm so fortunate to get to work in the NBA and to get to do this every day. And so I think there's truth in that. And because of that, there's only 30 teams. And so a lot of times what drives decision-making is not always in the best interest of the club, but in the best interest of the job um, that the person might have. And so what I think Mark Cuban has been able to do is to say to Donnie and, and Rick Carlisle, at least, you know, things change sports, yeah. no, nothing's forever in sports, but, you know, to give them a trust to say, Hey, do it the right way. Um, and to build that with stability is, is a, is a novelty in sports. And, um, I think that, you know, a lot of times you have a general manager and a coach who, um, are doing things to make sure that they have a resume to say, you should keep me, you shouldn't fire me. Um, and that paranoia is not unfounded. I mean, it, it, you look around the league. I mean, I don't know what a head coach's, uh, the average head coach's length is maybe three years. Um, yeah. you know, and, and then general managers get fired too. So, um, I think that's the stabi- culture of stability is a really interesting thing to pull on. Um, very cool. So, Anything else that you think we missed on either your story or um, from a mindset standpoint? The one thing I, I would love to hear a little more about is we mentioned Don Kalkstein earlier. 
And I've had somebody else on the podcast uh, talk about him specifically and say that he does a lot of work helping the coaches. Um, yes. So, so I'd love to just give your perspective on the role that he plays and, and how he impacts impacts the team. Yeah, he's an, he's an actually, I mean, I, I love the guy to death. He's so good. And, um, and again, I love positive people. So, of course, I would connect with Don right away. Don is also involved with our draft process. He's um, uh, interviews uh, players that we bring in. He also s- talks to our own players uh, as a day-to-day, especially with the first, second, third-year guys. And then, of course, he's with the coaches all the time. And um, so he's involved in it all the day-to-day. So he's, you know, heavily involved in the direction and how we're going as an organization. So, you know, as I talk about Mark and, and, and Donnie and Rick, you know, Don's also in that same category for what he brings as his professionalism to, again, another stable organization with great culture. And you as well. Uh, you, you spent a little bit of time with Minnesota um, as well. Um, so just close the, close the gap and, and just make sure that we're not leaving any loose ends when it yeah, comes so to the story of Tony. Yeah. Last thing is, you know, I, I've been to probably over a hundred countries, uh, China. I was also, I was the first American to be the assistant coach of the Chinese Olympic team. Uh, after we drafted Wang Juju, the first Chinese player to the NBA. And as you know, we drafted the first, uh, player from Mexico, Eduardo Nahara to the NBA to the Mavericks. So we're kind of in a first German, you know, with Dirk Nowitzki. So it's been a nice little run. And then just to let you know, I spent – also I spent uh, 10 years with the Detroit Pistons. So I was able to get a championship in 2004 with a team that was more of a chemistry team that had great culture and great leadership by Joe Dumars. And we were a team that – We know, didn't even talk about the Pistons, which is like the, the, the non-superstar. Uh, correct. Every piece fits – Yep. Rasheed Wallace coming over at the trade yep. deadline. Yep. Uh, Chauncey's a free agent. Get, get, all right. So uh, hold on. Let's Can we go into that team for, yeah, for a little? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Great team. Fun. Uh, so here's what I know. Uh, and so I know, first of all, Chauncey certainly a leader. Uh, you watch Chauncey on TV. He, he just seems so bright and um, just heady, like really heady guy. But that's a guy also who, uh, whose career fascinating to me because he comes from University of Colorado, top, <laughs> you know, top pick. He goes to Celtics. They're like, ah, yeah. He, 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 like, he goes to Nuggets, I think. Uh, yeah, then he was in Minnesota. So he like bounced around and mm-hmm. uh, finds his way in Detroit and, and blossoms. You have Rip Hamilton who comes yep. over from Washington for Jerry Stackhouse, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you have Tayshawn, uh, who was Tayshawn a second round pick or a late first? He was a really late pick, like 26 pick, really late. Right, but from Kentucky, yep. uh, a California guy. Yep. Um, and then you've got Ben, who uh, was traded, I think, originally from Washington to Orlando, Correct. Uh, goes up to Detroit. And for those that don't follow basketball, Ben Wallace had muscles for days, but <laughs> Nobody would say he was an offensive juggernaut, but knew his role, stayed in his lane, rebound, play defense, plays with passion and energy. Um, and then you have this missing piece that comes over in the deadline in Rashid Wallace, who is one of the most talented bigs. I had, yep. Brian, I had Brian Grant on the podcast, and Brian Grant and I were talking about Rashid because I said to Brian, I go, what do you think Rashid would be like in this generation? I go, was he a little early? Uh, and you're shaking your head because no one's going to see you. But Tony's shaking his head because Sheed was the first stretch big. And, yep. you know, today you would have him play the five and he would yep. he would be 
awesome. Um, but he was the first one that was crazy enough to say, no, I'm going to shoot my threes. Maybe mm-hmm. not the first. We had like Sam Perkins and, uh, you know, other guys before that. But, you know, to really do it with skill. Um, but one of the questions I had was about Rashid because one of the things that I always found interesting about Rashid was from the outside looking in, he looked like this crazy guy and, you know, would yell at the refs and freak out and uh, looked from the outside looking in mentally unstable but you talk to anybody who played with him and they all say he's the greatest teammate and then i had heard stories about uh the nba finals where he did stuff where like the players are only going to stay in the hotel uh and the wives we're going to get a different hotel for the wives because the players we got to be completely locked in and focused on the job so a am i wrong and b i would love for you to just share that dynamic on that team and what allowed them to be a championship team yeah, we we had one of the great chemistry, and at the time, the NBA seemed like it was a destination place. You know, we beat the Lakers in two thousand and four with Shaq and Kobe. It was a huge win for you know the Motor Motor City of Detroit because at the time, people said you know these small markets, in Milwaukee, Indiana, they can't win a championship, and we proved them wrong. And we had guys that wanted to play together, very unselfish, a team fit. You know, Tayshawn Prince was our defensive stopper. You know, Ben Wallace did all everything defense, and he was an unselfish guy. And we used to always have. I remember the coaches would always the first play of the game, they would give Ben the ball on the post. That was the first play. They'd run a play for him. Well, Ben knew he was getting the ball the first play. He was good the rest of the game. He knew that he had to do his job. And then, you know, Rashid, he was one of my favorite, please, my top three favorite players of all time. I just love the guy. I love his passion. It's funny you see him on the court. You just get a different impression about him because he would yell at the referees, ball don't lie. And, and, but on the court, he was – a team player, unselfish. And the thing about Rashid, he never wanted to be the number one option. He was very content on being the second, third option on the team. But if he wanted to be Brian, he could have been the best player on the floor every single night. But that wasn't his personality. People didn't know that about him. He just He's just a good teammate. And he, and he rooted for his teammates. He used to cheer his guys on when he was on the bench. Our rookies would go in the game. He was the first one to grab him when he came out of the game to talk to him, encourage him. Um, and he's really good at helping kids today. I don't know if you've seen him. You know, he goes around and works out with high school kids and helps them out, and, and just he's just a good person. So you're dead right about him. Great team, great 10 years I was there. I, uh, I had a blast. I mean, six Eastern finals and two NBA finals. You know, uh, there's another question I'm going to ask, but, you know, you, I think about him fitting in so well from a basketball uh, physical standpoint. And, you know, in between Ben Wallace and Tayshaun are defensive oriented and Rashid being so gifted offensively. But you just said something which is, you know, he was fine being the third option if Chauncey or Rip Hamilton are going to score. And if you had put a different power forward there, maybe it wouldn't have worked because they would have wanted the ball more in the post or, you know, wanted more touches. And uh, that, that isn't something I had thought of, which is, which is really interesting. Yeah, he's just, I mean, it's it unbelievable because you wanted games with him just to take over, but he was just, he'd rather pass the ball to Ben or pass it, get, let Rip shoot all the balls. And Rip, trust me, Rip would shoot all the balls. And so I, the Detroit thing, the other person I have to ask you about is, is Larry Brown. And once again, just me being around it, people just talk about him being so obsessed with basketball and like just wanting to, like, like, and you see it now, like he's still, yeah. he's, he's still wanting to coach anywhere. Um, what was it like being, being around him? He's a perfectionist. He's uh he wants you to play the right way. He didn't let you, you know, 
do what you want on the floor. He had control, but he he let our guys play free. But one thing about him is he made our guys accountable to play defense. And if you play defense, we became a great defensive team. And, you know, I think it started with Rick. Rick started the culture there when he first came in his first two years as a head coach. And then Larry came in with a talented team that was, you know, got us in the, in the finals and won it. And then we had a chance the second year in 2005 with uh, San Antonio. Uh, and then we lost in seven game series, but Larry was very, uh, he was, he's kind of a different today because he, he played more inside out. He wanted the ball to go inside and then play out where today everything's outside before it goes in. Um, but I just think his leadership he's won before was able to, uh, put us over the top. Awesome. All right. I think we covered enough of your basketball journey. Did we miss, we miss, so you're in Detroit for, for 10 years, you said, yeah. And then you end up back back in, in Minnesota. And I went to Minnesota for two years, assistant GM, a year and a half, and then uh, was out for about ten months. And then uh, Donnie uh, brought me back, and I've been there the last five years. And and we're in a position to uh, uh, get us back on top again. Awesome. Well, Tony, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I will put a note in like the introduction to make sure that people know that this is definitely a basketball centric conversation. <laughs> All right. And uh, you know, I, I like. I can't help myself though, because it's, um, you've been part of some really special teams. And I think about two of the most team, I think during like my lifetime, um, the three teams, I would, I put a third in there that I think of when I think of team basketball, uh, championship teams. First is absolutely Detroit. Second is Dallas. And third is the Spurs team that beat the heat, uh, yeah. when they just moved the ball and it yep. was just, because at that point, Duncan was not the s- superstar that he was earlier. Uh, Parker and Ginobili were still good, but it still was just such team basketball. And so to see, to talk to someone who's been part of those teams, let, let me finish with that question. So what makes those championship teams special? The complete unselfishness to play with each other. And it's not about I, it's about we, and it's about organization. I think it's the most important. And that everyone has the same common goal is, we're going to get better as a team. We're going to get better as an individual, but it's all about what's on the front of our jersey, not with our name on the back. And I think that's the most important thing. Awesome. So we'll end with we'll end with that. And what I'd love to do is just give you an opportunity to give a megaphone to anything that you're involved with, anything that you care about. Um, also, give us your social media handle and where people can learn more about you. Um, but take this time to just uh, give a megaphone to anything that you think is is worth. Uh, promoting, yeah, you know, I'm 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 about promoting just good people and doing good things, uh, and and living the right way. I think that's the most important thing, and 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 I think there's two words, um, that I say many times during the end. I think we forget saying is is the two words is thank you, and thank you, Brian, for letting me come on talk to you, and thank you for whoever's listening. I enjoy talking. I love the game. I love life. I, I have passion for it. I wake up in a good mood. And, um, you know, I got uh, a great wife and I got two young twin boys that I'm going to go watch play AAU basketball this week. And I'm going to enjoy sitting in the stands and just enjoying them play. So, and- so I, I'm going to just push you on one last thing rather than letting you go. You say you wake up every morning positive. Do you do anything in your morning ritual or your morning routine to make that happen? Or is that just something you think you were born with? I'm just, I'm excited to wake up. And then get my coffee. <laughs> and then my Twitter handles at Tony Ronzoni. Awesome. Well, Tony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. 
fun to fun to talk ball with you and all the best on you know i'm sure you guys have a busy summer coming up um and all the best with the draft and, and that whole process as well and uh hopefully our paths will cross again soon sounds like a plan thanks brian appreciate it thanks tony thanks brian thank you for listening to intentional performers with brian levinson here is this week's episode gem I had a winning mentality. I, 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 I had a saying that winners make it happen and losers make excuses. And I was, I preached it. I, I believed in it. And I, and I always told my teammates that, you know, no matter what, we are never out of the game. We never quit. And my philosophy was if we got beat, that's okay to get beat because if I know I gave it my all, the team just had the, the other team had a better day and that's okay because we're going to continue to improve and get better. So my mindset was always to make it happen. So that was a big thing. Winners make it happen. And I felt if we had, if we continue to make winners uh, as teammates and as a team, we're going to be very successful no matter what. Because when you walk off the floor no, as a coach or as a player, you want to know that you gave everything you had to win that game. So that was always my mindset, to compete at the highest level and never, never quit. <laughs>